ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله تعالى من شرور انفسنا ومن سيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له ونشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد ان سيدنا وحبيبنا محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد قال الله تبارك وتعالى في القران العظيم بعد اعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم يا ايها الناس اعبدوا ربكم الذي خلقكم والذين من قبلكم لعلكم تتقون ثم ما بعد السلام عليكم ورحمه الله وبركاته inshallah everybody is doing well alhamdulillah glad to be back for yes another faith circle and our topic tonight as mentioned is focusing on the will to worship now it's not going to be covering any specific of the categories from the seven shaded but we will be touching upon some of the categories most in particular the youth who spent his youth in uh, in in worship so that will be perhaps the major underlying theme that will be going uh, that will be running throughout tonight's class inshallah but there won't be any specific elaboration on any of the other uh, categories of people now before i get into the topic i did have one message from chef zahir that he wanted to relate to everyone and this was that he wanted as many people as they could to memorize the hadith on the seven shaded for he had a special prize for them so that's some homework that's some competition and motivation that he's uh, uh wanted me to relate to you guys so, so inshallah after the break when he comes back i don't know what prize he has in store for you guys but um he's giving you guys some homework to undertake so without further ado the class for tonight the will to worship so just a brief outline of the class what general topics we're going to be covering today uh most of it is just going to be really looking at ibadah worship from a conceptual point of view um what it entails why we need to do it who are we doing it towards and um really its importance in our lives today now before i get into the 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 meat so to speak of the of the talk i do want to give a bit of context as to why this topic especially as mundane is that as it may sound it is important for us to be aware of in a proper and holistic manner as we all obviously live in australia a country that is not backed by is not developed or founded upon any type of particular religious doctrine it is founded upon secular liberal values and so in essence assuming you guys watched the uh, or attended the faith circle class from last year speaking about secular secular secularism and liberalism then you would have gotten a general understanding of what exactly secularism entails and that is the separation of the activities of the state and the activities of the religious folk so to speak so the idea is that religion has no say or religion really has no proper and official presence in the activities of the state whether it be political whether it be uh, economical whether it be social you want to worship you want to preach you can you do that at a designated place of worship or you want to do it in the privacy of your house by all means go do that but don't try and you know bring your religion and try to uh, enforce it upon the masses through these different means that i've just mentioned now obviously as muslims this is a problematic notion for us however many of us 
perhaps growing up, we may have unwillingly adopted this mentality. How many of you guys, if I could get a hands up, went to a non-Muslim school? Public or private? So a decent amount of the people here. I would probably say over the majority of people here. All right. Now, hands up again, if you, during your teenage years, if you are at home, you adopted a particular identity, and when you went out, you assumed a different identity. You put on a different mask. Hands up if this was you. Someone. Okay. All right. Interesting. Although we may have done it, like I said, it, it may be something very subtle. Perhaps certain things that we said or did at home, we wouldn't do that outside. But the idea is that, or the people that did, the thinking is that we were a different type of person at home, meaning perhaps we were more expressive religiously and more expressive culturally as compared to when we were outside, right? However, as we perhaps grew up, we got into university, whatever, our thinking matured, we began to be more comfortable with our values and our beliefs. And so the dual identities we may have assumed eventually merged into one. And so, like I mentioned, as Muslims, this concept of secularizing our religion from our social, political, economic life is a notion that we cannot accept because our worship, our religion is our way of life. It is our worldview. We look at the world through the lens of Islam. And so that is perhaps one of the major points as to why really understanding worship on a conceptual level is so important for us tonight, inshallah. So the first slide, the first topic, what is worship itself? So as it appears on the screen, the, let, let us begin from the very foundation of this. What is worship, the, the meaning of the word worship in Arabic? Ibadah. Coming from the root, Ain ba dad. And this, as it says, is a culmination of different meanings. So, number one, to serve. Number two, to worship. Number three, to adore. Number four, to venerate. Number five, to deify uh, something. Another one of these meanings is that you... Uh, the person who is worshipping is humbly submitting himself to towards something. Now, obviously, in our Islamic context, this is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, what I've just mentioned, these are, as I said, a culmination of different meanings. Culmination of different meanings of external actions and internal actions as well. Right? And Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah, he has a, he further defines this by saying that ibadah, worship, is something that comprises of everything Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala loves and he approves of from both the apparent and the hidden, hidden sayings and deeds. So the apparent sayings and deeds, so the, the external actions that we do, that could be salah, zakah, etc. And the internal sayings and deeds that we do, the internal deeds that we may be doing. So when this is belief, right? This is a form of worship and things such as loving Allah, having tawakkal uh, in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and um, sincerity towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. These are, this is what it means by both uh, uh, external actions and internal actions. Both things that Allah loves for human beings to be doing externally and the things that human beings should be doing internally. Now, from the Qur'an, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the very first command in the Qur'an is of worship. 
Now, the first mention of worship is not the verse I'm about to go through. The first mention of, that, uh, of worship is in Surah Fatiha. It is you, Allah, that we, you alone that we worship and you alone that we seek help from. However, when Surah Baqarah begins, it begins by listing some of the characteristics of the believers, then it lists some of the characteristics of the disbelievers, then of the hypocrites, the munafiqul. This goes on for about 20 verses, up until verse 21, where then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala addresses all of these people combined. He says, Ya Riyuhannas, O people, O mankind, Worship your Lord who has created you and who has created those who came before you. For what purpose? So that you may attain God consciousness. So you may became so that you may become more aware of Him, subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now there's a very interesting discussion in the tafsir about why Allah has mentioned us. Sir, uh, So Allah says, Worship your Lord who has created you, referring to the people at the time, obviously, were the Sahaba, uh, and those that came before you. All right? I want to pose a question to you guys. Allah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has mentioned the people to whom he's revealed these verses, okay? And then those that came before them. Why did he not mention the people who would come after? Anybody want to have a girl? Why that may be the case. So he's mentioned, you, so worship your Lord who has created you. When this verse was revealed, this is obviously addressing the Sahaba. Okay? And by extension, the rest of mankind for all times as well. And then he mentioned those who came before you as well. So what, what about those people who came after the Sahaba? So a particular, now one of the, the, the Mufassir that uh, discusses this, he says that, the reason why the group after has not been mentioned is because the Sahaba and those that come after them and those that follow them are all part of the same group. All right? And so when Allah is referring to the Sahaba, he's obviously referring to all those that follow him, by extension, us as well. And the implication is that we are the last group. Okay? There is no group that will come after us. There is no prophet that will come after the prophet There is no message that will come after the Quran and there is no ummah that will come after the ummah of Rasulullah So we are the final carriers of this message of the Quran. And by extension, this has been revealed to us and so we have a duty to first and foremost implement and practice the teachings of this message and then share this with the rest of mankind because they have no other source to attain this information from other than the Qur'an and the prophetic tradition. Okay, so now that we have a rough understanding of what worship means and what it entails, let us now look into who do we worship. Now, after going on that discussion before, the short answer is, obviously, we worship Allah, okay? But there are other things for us to take heed of and to take notion of to ensure that we are not falling into these different uh, unfortunate traps that may seep into our thinking and our lifestyle. So, first and foremost, we need to recognize that every single prophet that came, hundreds and thousands of prophets that have come throughout 
all of human history, the ones that we know of, the ones that we don't know of, they came with the same message, which was to worship Allah alone and to not associate any partners with him. That was the core message of every single prophet that came, whether that was Ibrahim, whether that was Musa, Isa, Dawood, Sulaiman, all of them from Adam all the way to Muhammad We all came to their people with this same core message. And so historically, whether we look at it from a religious perspective or just a global perspective, of the ones mentioned in the Quran, obviously the focus is on Tawheed. But if we look at it uh, just in a purely world history perspective, every civilization, I would say pre-1700s, every civilization worshipped in some type of God. Okay? Whether it is in line with the Islamic understanding or not, every religion, every civilization has some type of notion of God Almighty. So this shows that there is a precedence for all of mankind believing in some type of high power. Now the second thing, from who do we worship? We worship the one who responds to us. Now oftentimes, we have friends, we seek help from our friends, we may try contacting our friends for different needs of ours. Sometimes they respond, sometimes they don't respond. And sometimes when they don't respond, it may just be because they don't want to respond. Not that they're withholding something from us to give to us in the future. But for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we call out to Him with a sincere heart, with a pure soul, with a pure outcry towards Him. He has promised us that He will respond to us in some manner, whether it be immediately, whether it be later on, whether it be in this world, whether it be in the next world. But He says subhanahu wa ta'ala, وَقَالَ رَبُّكُمْ وَدَعُونِي أَسْتَجِبَ لَكُمْ إِنَّ الَّذِينَ يَسْتَكْبِرُونَ عَنْ عِبَادَتِي سَيَدْخُلُونَ جَهَنَّمَ تَاقِرِينَ Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that, call upon me and I will respond to you. Surely those who are too proud to worship me will enter the hell fully humbled. So this is Allah declaring that we call upon him, he will respond to us. And this is, and he will respond to us. Like I mentioned, there are certain criteria that we need to keep in mind of that we're, that we're, that we're worshipping him alone sincerely and that we're coming to him with a, with a pure heart. It is in that context that he subhanahu wa ta'ala will respond to us. But like I mentioned, unlike the friend who doesn't want to respond to us because he doesn't feel like it, Allah will respond to us regardless um, of uh, what our context may be. Now the second thing, the last two things that I've got up there, worshipping our desires and worshipping our boss. Number one, worshipping our desires. Now, I understand the Shaykh Sahib may have gone through aspects of this in the weeks prior, but I do want to touch upon uh, just some things. In the reflecting on the current state of our world today, the general trend that we see within our society is that everyone, or not everyone rather, but it is very prevalent within people to be incredibly individualistic. And I want to highlight this with one particular example, a news story that I that that was running its rounds a couple of years ago. In the city of Philadelphia in America, around 9 p.m., 
on a subway on a train. A lady's sitting there. There's about 10 other people that are sitting around her. Around 9 p.m., a man walks onto the train, forcefully sits next to this lady. For the next approximately 40 minutes, he's harassing her, touching her, etc. And she is trying to resist this the entire time. And then the last eight or so minutes, he then begins to take it to the next level. And this entire time, people are there, people are coming and going. Nobody says a peep. Nobody says anything to what is happening, right? In fact, some people end up recording what's going on as well. Now, they, they, they claim that, oh, we're doing this for evidence. But once again, this is going on for almost an hour. This lady is being assaulted for almost an hour. And nobody had the audacity, nobody had the courage to stand up and say, hey, look, what the heck are you doing? This is wrong. Right? And the reason for this is that we, we don't want to get involved. You know, if it's not affecting us, then, you know, we, we don't want any part in it. Right? Who knows what they're doing? You know, maybe they're, they're doing something. It's between them. Whatever, whatever, whatever is happening, it's between them. We don't want to get involved. All right? So we, we remove ourselves from this particular uh, we, we, we remove ourselves from wanting to take part in doing, in, in ensuring evil here is not stopped. And this is because once again, like I mentioned, it's because we don't want to, uh, we don't want it to affect us in any way. We don't want to take any type of blame for what is to happen. Now, just while I'm on this, Rasulullah wasallam, he advises the Muslims that whenever one of you sees an evil, what should he do? Number one, if he sees an evil occurring, he should change it with his hands. All right? He should change it with his hands. If he cannot do that, then he should change it with his tongue. All right? He should speak out against the evil that's occurring. He should change it with his heart. But really what the implication is that he should hate it in his, in his heart. And then he ends the hadith by saying, That this is the lowest level of faith, to hate something in your heart. So just to recap, if you see an evil, try changing it with your hands. If you can't do that, you speak out against it. If you can't even do that, you hate it in your heart. And what we see in this example I just gave, no one he changed it with the hands. Nobody spoke out against it. And Allah alam if they even hated what was happening in the heart either. Okay? The second thing that I've mentioned. So the first one is individualism. Second one is happiness. All right, this notion of overt happiness. All right, and this once again stems from this idea of nafsi, nafsi, me, me. All right, that if something makes me happy, then I should be able to do it. Okay, if uh, whatever it may be, even if it might cause me harm later on, let me do it. It's not affecting you. It's making me happy. Now, I want to once again ask you guys, hopefully I've got some answers this time. Why is this a problematic notion? If we let people just do whatever they want in terms of happiness. Yes. So the brother says that it leads to hedonism and that it's only good for one person, but, it's not good, but it is not good for the rest of society. Now, why may, not, why may it not be good for the rest of society? Mm -hmm. Okay. So the brother says that the, the wider problems that it causes is that although one person may be feeling happy, maybe feeling the pleasure, whatever it may be, but it has widespread negative connotations to the rest of society, okay? Now, once again, where does in this overt individualism, where does this uh, overt uh, focus on self-happiness come from? 
it comes from the following of our desires. And the taking of our desires is our Lord. As we've all heard the verse, That Allah says, Have you seen the one who has taken his desires, his hawa, as his Lord? Okay? This focusing that I, I, whatever I'm feeling is what I'm going to follow. Whether this is going to bring me any benefit, whether this is going to bring about any benefit to anyone else or not, I don't care. As long as I follow this feeling in my heart or my stomach and I fulfill it. And this last thing that I have, worship your boss. Many times I've had a conversation with someone and they've told me that I don't like to pray at work or I don't pray at work. And the reason being is somebody might see me. My boss might see me, my coworkers might see me, and two things may happen. They might think I'm weird, all right? Or they might fire me for my job, right? Because remember, religion, we don't want this involved in social circles. So they might fire me for my job. Now, obviously, the person who is not praying isn't saying, isn't, you know, deifying their boss, isn't worshiping their boss, doesn't take their boss to be an ilah. But it's this subtle notion that Allah has commanded something, but you are giving preference to what your boss may say, what your boss may think of you. And this is a very, very subtle notion that creeps into our thinking. Although we may not be aware of it, but it creeps into our thinking. And really, this is something that we need to seriously evaluate if we find ourselves in this position. I'll give you a, a, a personal example. I recently just finished an internship. And in the first couple of weeks that I was there, now there was no like private room for me to pray. So I would pray in one of two rooms that were both meeting rooms. And you could look into the rooms if you walked past. Now, I'll be honest with you, the first couple of days that I was there, anytime I would hear footsteps and the, the walls were paper thin, so you could easily hear people walking past. Anytime I would hear people walking past, I'd get into a bit of a, a frenzy while I was praying, okay? I'm very honest with you. But as time went on, I began to think to myself, number one, who is in charge of lighters? Is it my manager? Is it my supervisor? Right? Is it the company that I work for? Or is it Ar-Razad, the provider? Is it Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? The second thing was, even if they do catch me, let them fire me. I'll find something else. There's no worries. I'm who, who, what did they catch me doing? Praying. Praying to who? Praying to Allah. And we all know the countless verses and the countless ahadith where uh, one in particular, the Prophet وسلم, he says that, verily you will never leave a thing for the sake of Allah except that he will replace it with something better. So if hypothetically somebody looked in and they saw me praying and they reported me to my manager and he said, you know what? Your time's up. Which, by the way, my manager was very accommodating, so he wouldn't have cared. But, hypothetically, if he did care, and he fired me, so what? My risk, like I mentioned, is not in the hands of my boss. My risk is not, meant, is not in the hands of the company that I work for, regardless of how multinational and how much, uh, how much uh, 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 expenditure and revenue that they have. It doesn't matter. Allah is the one who is providing for me. I am not dependent on these people. They, they're paying me, great, alhamdulillah. They're not paying me, they want to get rid of me, no worries at all. So this is something else that we need to reflect upon 
who are we worshiping and whose words, whose opinions, whose thoughts are we giving preference to? Now, of course, this is not going to be something that we change overnight. And like I said, first couple of days I was there, I'd get a little shaky when people were walking past. However, over time, the more I reminded myself of these different things, that it is Allah that I'm worshiping. What am I doing? I'm praying, right? I'm praying. I'm fulfilling my obligation towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. My obligation is, my obligation to Allah is greater than my obligation to my boss. So the more I reminded myself, the more it allowed me to then, when people were walking past, oh, no worries, unfazed. No worries at all. So this is something that we need to reflect and try and adopt as well, inshallah. And like I said, this is something that will take time. So now that we've understood who we worship, let us now understand who the worshippers are. There are different categories of worship and there's different types of worshippers. So, just to preface this, the entirety of creation is considered to be under the category of the worshippers of Allah. Whether they like it or not. Whether they are worshipping Allah or whether they are not. They end up being sub subdued to him, his subhanahu wa ta'ala's will and his command. So, just for example, how are the believers, you know, falling under this category? Like I mentioned, doesn't matter who you are, you are, you end up being subdued to the will of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah's will comes in different forms. There is the will that he loves, and there is the will that he manifests in the world, although he may not love exactly. And so, for the disbeliever, he does not like the disbeliever's kufr. But at times it is, uh, but the disbelievers' kufr may lead to some type of good that may end up being something that Allah loves. I'm not going to go too deep into the different types of wills, perhaps for another time. But essentially, the bad that may occur from people may end up some type of greater, may end up with some type of greater good. And all of creation, whether they are believers, non-believers, hypocrites in between, are all worshippers of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. Now this second category that I've mentioned, that I haven't labeled, I've got a bunch of question marks. Whom may that be referring to? Anybody want to have a guess? I'll have a quick read and then have a guess. So I'll read it out if you can't see it. So it says that these are people, these are beings that who do not speak until he has spoken. They are only hacked by his command. He fully knows what is ahead of them and what is behind them. They do not intercede except for whom he approves, and they tremble in awe of him. The angels. Yes, thank you very much. So the angels are also obviously the archetypal, the standard of worshippers amongst the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Why is that the case? Because that's the only thing that they created to do. To listen to Allah and to obey his commands. That's it. Right? Other than that, they're probably just standing still until they're waiting for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to give them some type of command. That is the only function that they serve, which is to worship Allah. And then the next category of people, those who believe in him subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now there's various different qualities of those that believe in. I've listed some of them, obviously I'm not going to go through all of them. So the first of these is that they will humbly upon the earth. This is from the uh, Surah Furqan, verse number 63. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَعِبَادُ الرَّحْمَانِ الَّذِينَ يَمْشُونَ عَلَى الْأَرْضِ حَوْنًا وَإِذَا فَاطَبَهُمْ وَنْجَاهِلُونَ قَالُوا سَلَامًا That the true servants of the most merciful, the most compassionate, are those who walk humbly upon the earth, and when the foolish, when the foolish address them, 
they say, they respond with salam, they respond with peace, and they walk off. Okay, so this is the first category of who, uh, who are these worshippers. The second of these is the one who stays upon the path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Sorry, this is a very vague one, so context is required. Shaitan, when he disobeyed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he made a promise to Allah and also to mankind as well. And this was that he will sit on the path of Allah and he will cause them, he will cause whoever tries to walk on this path, he will cause them to deviate. And so the exact ayah is, uh, he says, Shaitan says, قَالَ رَبِّ بِمَا هَوَّيْتَنِي لَأُزَيِّنَنَّ لَهُمْ فِي الْأَرْضِ وَلَأُغْبِيَنَّهُمْ أَجْمَعِينَ That, my Lord, so he blames Allah, he says, for allowing me to stray, I will surely tempt them on the earth and mislead them altogether. So Shaitan, he blames Allah that you've caused me to deviate, and as a result, I'm going to sit on your path, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to sit on your path, and I'm going to tempt whoever walks this path, I'm going to tempt them on the earth, mislead them altogether. Except for those of your chosen servants. Alright? Except for those of your chosen servants. And then Allah says, That this is the way that is binding upon me. And you, Shaitan, will certainly have no authority over my, uh, over my servants except for the deviants that, uh, that follow you. Okay, so this is a, another category of people that those who attempt to walk on this path of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the straight path, and they do not get shaken by the temptations of shaitan. The third category of people, or the third characteristics of the people, is that they believe in the signs of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Allah mentions that, Ya ibadi la khawfun alaykum wal yawma wa la hantum to the servants of Allah, they will be told that on Yom Al-Qiyamah, there is no fear for you today, nor will you grieve. For you believed in our signs and you submitted fully towards us. So their characteristic is that they believed in the signs of Allah and they submitted themselves completely towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then there's the final category of people. And this is the people who perhaps may be the ones in between, the hypocrites or the disbelievers. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that although their hearts were convinced the signs were true, they still denied them wrongfully and arrogantly. See what then was the end of the corruptors. So he describes them denying the signs that have come to them and they did this so arrogantly. Okay. Now, there are two examples that I want to give with this. One example as of a, uh, a story that Chef Wendy Basioni, who came earlier this year, he mentioned in one of his classes that a non-Muslim came to his masjid and he saw the Muslims praying. He saw them doing sujood. And he said to the Sheikh, he said that, I will never do that, referring to the sujood. I will never prostrate. Why? Because he saw that as something that was demeaning. Right? That me surrendering my forehead before something, me considering something else to be great, what is this a sign of? This is a clear sign of arrogance. All right? So even though his heart, may, even though he might think Islam, to, even though he might have some type of inclination towards Islam, but his arrogance overpowers his will to worship. Now another example of this, of denying the signs of Allah, 
even though they thought that they, even though they they understood them to be true, is an example of the Christians and the Jews uh, at the time of the Prophet particularly of the Jewish people. And a very quick story with that is all the the father of Safiya radiallahu anha, who was one of the wives of the Prophet So after one of the battles, uh, the Prophet defeats the tribe of Safiya radiallahu anha, and the father of Safiya has an encounter with the Prophet And he recognized, so, so Safiya was from a Jewish background, and her father was a learned man amongst the Jewish people. So he understands through his interaction with the Prophet that this person, Muhammad is the one that has been prophesied in our scriptures. To this man, the father of Safiya understood and recognized that the Prophet was indeed a Prophet of Allah. And he was the one that was prophesied in the Torah. Yet, Safiya, is, uh, in the books of Sirah we find, she's relating the story later on after she's become Muslim. She overhears a conversation between her father and her uncle. So her uncle, her father comes back after meeting the Prophet and her uncle asks him, is he really the one? Is he really the one that's mentioned in our scriptures? And her father says, yes, it is. It is, it is him. He's the one. And her uncle says, are you sure he is the one? He says, yes, I'm sure of it. I'm very sure of it. And then, and then her uncle asked, what will you do about it? And uh, Sophia's father said something to the effect of that, um, I will be an enemy towards him for the rest of my life. So he recognized the Prophet to be Prophet of Allah. He recognized him to be the one who was from their scriptures. Yet regardless of that, through some type of malice in his heart, some type of disease in his heart, malice, eager, what, uh, arrogance, whatever it may be, as a result of that, he did not want to accept Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, And by extension, he did not want to accept the true path of Islam. Now the next question. Why do the worshippers need to worship? We've understood the one to be worshipped. We've understood the characteristics of the worshippers. But now, why? how do we reconcile this? Why do the worshippers need to worship the one to be worshipped? So, the first point, something that I've alluded earlier towards, that is that everyone worships something. Whether we know what we're worshipping, or whether we don't know what we're worshipping. If it's not a god, then it may be something other than a god. Now, for example, during the, I mean, even now, even normal days, but especially during the, uh, the World Cup for football last year, all right, people were religiously following it, staying up late at night, watching the games at 3, 4 o'clock in the morning. Never done that for the Hajjid, but, you know, Argentina play, we must stay up. All right? People are staying up. People are, are they're not removing their eyes from the screen. Laser focused. Very, lot of, lots of khushur while watching the, the games. MashaAllah. All right? Some people even making dua, subhanAllah, for their team to win. But it's more than that. Some people go beyond that as well. Right, we see in the stadiums if a player he scores a very incredible goal, a chunk of the stand will start waving their arms up and down like this to signify what you know we worship you. Although once again, they're not deifying this person, but the act is still there. Right? They 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 appreciate this person, they love this person to such a high degree that, you know, 
if, if we could, we would worship you. If we could, we would deify you. Because you've, you've, uh, you've, you've enlightened our hearts to that, to that extent. Now, for others, it may not be sport. For others, it may be money. All right? Day and night. You know, the, the, the Forex bros, they're, uh, they're, on, they're on their computers looking at all the different stock stuff going on. And they're trying to scam people with their courses. They're all over social media. They're paying for the ads, making sure people are trying to, to get on in on their things, right? They're on the grind. They're ignoring everything else that is of, that is of an obligation, that is of worth to them. Why? Because they're in this race to try and attain as much money as they possibly can, even if it may be at the peril of other people. They don't care. For as long as we, uh, we get our pockets to be heavier. Now, why are these things not worthy of worship? So, three general points. Number one is that these things change. All right? These things change. For example, somebody invests into something. Maybe a couple of weeks later, months, years later, their return on their investment is billions and millions. But an incident with the company can happen, and overnight, that stock gets reduced to zero. It has the capacity to change. The second point is very similar, that they are temporary, they do not last. There will come a time, even if you are successful with this investment, there will come a time where it will be of no use to you, and it will be of no value for you. And the third thing is that it does not benefit you in the long run, it does not benefit you in your ultimate purpose. Alright? Although in the dunya you've achieved greatness, but... What, what are you going to take with you to the grave? You're not going to be able to take any of this stuff with you to the grave. And so then we seek an alternative. We seek something that benefits us in this dunya and in the next as well. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala questions the type of people that engage in the previous examples that I've just given. He says, He says, subhanahu wa ta'ala, he rebukes them. And he says, and he asks, do you then worship other than Allah, what can neither benefit you nor harm you? And all these things I've, I've, I've just mentioned, these things and of course other things along with it, whenever, someone's, whenever somebody's passion overtakes their will to worship a higher being, that thing can essentially become that ilah. So Allah is questioning these people who ignore Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, or who ignore seeking out a creator for these other things. He's questioning them and asking them, do you worship other than Allah things that do not bring you any type of benefit, nor harm you in any particular way? So the question is raised, why chase after these things that do not benefit you, nor do they stay with you forever? Now, one thing that we need to understand is that the reason why we're always, why people in general are jumping from one thing to another is because we're all trying to chase after some type of purpose. We're all trying to chase after some type of meaning. We're, 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 we're wanting to look towards something. We're wanting to chase after something, right? And particularly something that does benefit us and that will stay with us, all right? We want the good times to last. We want the money to last. We want the fun to last. But as I mentioned, a lot of these things, it changes instantly. We think it's going to last forever, but it does not. So where should then we direct our purpose? Where should we direct our, uh, our path towards fulfillment and happiness? 
towards something that will stay with us, towards something that will benefit us, towards something that was here before us and will be here after us. And that is Al-Hayt, the ever-living. That is Al-Ghani, the self-sufficient. That is Al-Bar, the, the source of all good. That is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now, the question then raised is to the, the question that is then raised is why was Allah worthy of worship? Now I'm going to come back to that in just a moment, and I want to quickly just touch upon. Okay, never mind. I'll, I'll stick to the question: Why is Allah Subhanahu wa Taala worthy of worship? I've done enough talking for now. I want to ask you guys. Why is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala worthy of worship? There was a hint of this that I mentioned at the start, but there is obviously more to it as well. Why is Allah deserving of worship? Now we go, there are no wrong answers, inshallah. Yes, because he made everything, okay? So this was referenced in the verse that I mentioned at the start, where Allah says, Ya yuhan nas, rabbakum min qablikum. So in this verse specifically, he made us. And he made those that came before us. So he made mankind. Sister at the back that I had that? No, okay, same thing. All right. Brothers? Okay. Sir, if I can remember all that, sir, he, because he created us, he controls everything. Because he controls everything, then he is. Uh, what was the last part you said? Because he controls everything? Sir, because he controls everything, we try to, we, we prove that we are worthy of attracting his sustenance. Okay? Uh, yes, yeah. He's blessed us in ways that we cannot imagine. Yes, okay. So that is, that is more of a central reason. That, for something that is so great, love being so great, it is impossible. It should be impossible for us to ignore his majesty. It should be impossible for, for us to ignore his, uh, his magnanimity. Now, the more central purpose is mainly because of well, what the sister re referenced to us was the grandness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the perfection of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. In his names and attributes. Whatever of these positive qualities of love, compassion, whatever it is, Allah is, Allah has the highest level. Or rather, to say he has the highest level is to cap it. Allah is infinitely loving. Allah is infinitely compassionate. Allah is infinitely knowledgeable. Okay? To Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala belongs the best names and attributes. To Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala belongs the uh, unlimited capacity for all of these different and positive qualities. And so for this, this is one of the reasons why the, uh, the Prophet ﷺ in one of his du'as, he says that, I cannot praise you enough, you are as you have praised yourself. Meaning that our praising of Allah is deficient and it's not enough to fulfill the right of what he truly deserves, subhanahu wa ta'ala. And furthermore, the, it is also mentioned that the angels also say, the angels, the ones who were worshipping Allah day and night, they also say that glorified are you, we have not worshipped you as you, uh, as you uh, worshipped you as you have, you, as you are deserved to be worshipped. Okay, so these are beings that are worshipping Allah day and night, yet they still cannot fulfill the right of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala's uh, to be worshipped. And this is simply because Allah Subhanahu wa Taala is too grand; He is too perfect for any imperfect and any limited being to fulfill that particular right. Now, another question that I want to address. As to why, as to why the worshippers should be worshipping. 
Now we know Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I've mentioned the, the perfection of Allah. So then why should we worship Allah if our worship has no effect on Him? Okay? Okay. Yes, sure. He taught us to and is omniscient. And that is exactly what is referenced in the oft-quoted verse in Surah Al-Ariyat. We have not created mankind, but we have not created jinn and mankind except for our worship. But then he provides an extra explanation in the verse that comes right after it, and it's really phenomenal. Allah Ta'ala says, That I seek no provision from them, nor do I need them to feed me. So he's commanded us to worship him. And people ask the question, well, why do we need to worship God? Right? Does, that, does it have some type of effect on God? But here is Allah dismissing that notion completely. That I seek no provision from them, nor do I need them to feed me. Verily, Verily, Allah alone is the supreme provider and the Lord of all power, of almighty. So this notion is completely dismissed. Allah is making it very clear. Your worship has no effect on me. Rather, rather, you are worshipping for the benefit of yourselves. You are worshipping for the benefit of yourselves. And Allah mentions, Allah references this in a verse in Surah Naman where he says that uh, those, whoever, those who choose to be guided, it is only for their own good. But whoever chooses to stray, then say you're a prophet, then I am only a warner. Okay, so he makes it clear that who choose to be guided, who choose to walk the path of guidance, they're walking this path to attain its benefits, and these benefits will affect them. Whenever, whenever they strive to do in attaining these benefits, once again, it will only affect them and them alone. It will not affect the one who is providing these benefits. So we've gone through who, the worship, who is to be worshipped. We've gone through who are the worshippers. We've gone through why the worshippers need to worship. Now, a last question that may come up is then, when and where should we worship? And I take my inspiration from a prominent Muslim influencer in the world. And um, I just want to relay what, I just want to share what he has to say. Hopefully it works. Operating was that time. Good job. Easter phone for the certain I'm operating more free. Walking in here, walking out. Has this something I do at all times? All right. Sir, mashallah, as Brother Khalid says, that... Um, he, he's praying as he's walking in and he's walking out of the room. You know, he says that Muslims are supposed to pray a certain amount of times, but, you know, he prays 10 times. Okay? So he prays double the amount that we need to pray. Now, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but as the question says, when do we pray and why do we pray? So, uh, once again, as I've alluded to, prayer is, sorry, worship is more than just a set of rituals. All right? As I mentioned at the start, the secular notion is to regulate worship to a place of worship or to the privacy of the house. But as Muslims, worship is our lifestyle. Worship is our way of life. And as Brother Khalid has referenced her, walking in, walking out of rooms. And this is, this is the reality of some people that as they are walking wherever they may be, as they're in the car, they're driving, they're doing zikr of Allah SWT. Alright? Sir, our worship is not confined to a place of worship. It's not confined to our houses. It is to be an embodiment. It is to be it is to be embodied into our lifestyle. And once again, it doesn't have to be a set of rituals. It can be this can be the sincere conviction in the heart. It can be our reliance upon Allah. It can be our sincerity towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And once again, 
these actions, as we know from the hadith, that our actions are contingent upon our intentions. So we can do all the ritualistic acts, we can do whatever physical acts that may uh, that may imply worship from the one from somebody that is uh, observing it. However, if the intention isn't there, if the faith isn't there, then these acts are rendered worthless. So therefore, we need some type of fuel to drive our our worship, or rather, to drive our will to worship. I forgot about this slide, but this is essentially highlighting the, the the this dichotomy between the external actions and internal actions. And this is something that Sheikh Al Islam Ibn Taymiyyah, in his book Al Ubudiyah, he has listed out uh, in a very nice manner where he references those acts on the left which are considered to be the outward acts of worship and then those acts on the uh, on the right to be those that are the, the worship of the heart so this is a nice uh, summation of different things that we can be doing okay so like i said we need something to fuel our worship and this is taqwa all right as we mentioned in the verse at the very start in Surah Baqarah, Allah says, O humanity, O mankind, worship Allah, for He has created you and He created those who came before you. So that you may be mindful of Him, so that you may attain God consciousness and the other meanings of taqwa. Now, what is implied here is that you worship Allah, you attain taqwa. The more taqwa you attain, the more worship you do of Allah. And the more worship you do, the more taqwa you attain. It's a cycle. That is self-sustaining if done correctly. Now, I don't want to get into the nitty-gritties of taqwa, perhaps for another time, but I do want to mention, but I do, I have listed two particular hadith that I think are very important and I would say foundational to understand this idea of taqwa. So, the first one is getting us more of an idea of what taqwa perhaps may entail, and number two is then a bit more practical. So, the first one is reported by Ibn Abbas radiallahu an, who at the time was a young man and he was riding along with the Prophet وسلم, on a journey it's not mentioned exactly where but it's just mentioned that he's riding along with the Prophet and the Prophet turns to him and he says young man shall I inform you of some words shall I teach you of some words and he says that be mindful of Allah so that he may protect you then he repeats it that be mindful be mindful of Allah and you will find him before you if you ask anything from anyone ask Allah if you seek help from anyone or anything seek help from Allah and the hadith continues after that but this is a general outline a general framework of what taqwa entails now this is especially important for I would say people who are considering to have children and people who do have children. Why is that? This is something that my teacher, Imam Ahmed of Karabi, he mentioned when trying to explain this hadith. He said that if you instill taqwa into a child from a young age, when he grows up, you can send him anywhere. Now, why is that? Because this child is constantly in a state where he's remembering Allah. Maybe not doing dhikr, but he's aware of the implications of his actions. He's aware of his, he's aware of the effects that his surroundings have on him. So he knows, even if you put him in the middle of the city on a Thursday night or a Friday night, 
you as a parent will know if I've raised him, if I've raised him properly, if I've instilled these values in him, he's not going to go down to Fortitude Valley. All right. He's not going to go down to Salfa. Why? Because this child has a mindfulness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And you've taught him that if you're mindful of Allah, he will protect you. Right? And let's say not even in the city. You send him or her overseas somewhere. All right. You won't have to worry about anything necessarily. Why? Because you know my child has this constant thought in his in his or her mind that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is watching watching me. Allah is watching my actions. Allah is aware of everything that I do. And you know also that if my child is in a state of uh, is in a state of desperation, is in a state of need, then of course they'll they'll do what they need to do in asking people or whatever. But the first thing that they will do is turn towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And some of the scholars very interestingly very interestingly mentioned that when a person is in this state of need, the first thing that they should do, and it's actually according to one scholar I was listening to, is dislike that the first thing that you do is that you turn towards someone when you're in a state of need. Right? Rather what you should be doing is turn towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then you take the necessary means to attain whatever uh, problem you're going through to solve it. But your first, the first being that you should turn towards is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now the second hadith, like I mentioned, is slightly more practical and contextualizes taqwa a bit more. Now, although it is reported from Abu Dhar, uh, it, there is another chain which is from uh, Mu'adh radiallahu anhu. And uh, the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa is advising Mu'adh radiallahu anhu as he's sending him off to, uh, I believe it was Yemen. So he says to Mu'adh, اتقلها حيث ما كنت وأتبعي السيئة الحسنة تمحوها وخالق وخالق الناس بخلق حسن That Mu'adh, fear Allah wherever you may be and follow a bad deed up with a good deed and it will erase it and uh, behave with good character towards the people uh, and I mentioned Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah ibn Taymiyyah wrote a small book on justice hadith as well explaining the different components of this it's a very interesting book its name is uh, Al-Wasiyah al-Sulwana on the concise advice so what does this hadith entail in terms of practicality so number one the core of what we're supposed to be doing is taqwa alright so this word that's mentioned um, wherever you are haythuma in Arabic uh, it is explained that it is referring to both time and place so regardless of what place you're in and regardless of what time it is you are to have uh, taqwa of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala you are to have awareness of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala Right? Whether you are in the privacy of your house, privacy of your of your room, privacy of the night, wherever it may be, or whether you're in public, everyone can see you. You are to have taqwa of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now in the instance that your taqwa is uh taqwa has not manifested in your mind, right? And you end up committing a sin. Then what do you do in that case? The Prophet then advises us that in the instance that we commit a sin. Immediately follow it up with a good deed so that it erases it. Okay? And the final piece of advice that behave uh, behave with good character towards the people. There's a statement of Ibn Qayyim rahimahullah where he says, that the entirety of Islam is good character. 
فمن زاد عليك في maybe miscoring فمن زاد فمن زاد عليك في الخلق زاد عليك في الدين that the one who excels over you in character excels over you in the religion all right so it, 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 the implication is that essentially just as our rituals are important uh, with our worship so as having good character and that if we excel in our uh, in our character we excel in our worship or we excel in our deen and by extension our worship as well so now with this slightly more nuanced and holistic understanding of worship we then go into the final stretch of our talk inshallah and that is after understanding all of these different concepts where should our worship lead us to number one is obvious we do everything correctly it leads us to jannah inshallah but more importantly in terms of our worldly life what are the effects of worship in our worldly life we all have once again have heard of this verse and sort of around allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that those who believe and whose hearts find comfort in their remembrance of allah surely those Surely in the remembrance of Allah do hearts find comfort. So we live a more content for life. We live a life that is more calm and more peaceful. And our worries and our anxieties, as we will learn in the next verse that I will be mentioning, will no longer be apparent. The second is, we will have no fear and sadness when we live a life that is of worship. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says to Adam alayhi salam and Hawa after he has taken them down from Jannah. This is mentioned in Surah Baqarah. He says, That get down from here, all of you. That descend from descend from, from from paradise, descend from here. Then when my guidance comes to you, right? When sorry, when guidance comes to you from me, whoever follows it, shall have no uh, shall have no hope and shall have no prison shall have no fear and shall have no anxiety uh, sorry sadness shall have no sadness if he follows this guidance so the first thing was that he will live a contentful life number two if he follows the guidance of Allah and the guidance of Allah is telling him to worship Allah then he will have no fear and he will have no sadness that will be overtaking him because he will know that everything is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Number three, this person who worships Allah will be unfazed in the hardships of life. In one of the battles, in the battle of Uhud, just after the battle of Uhud, the companions had regrouped in Medina. They were counting their losses and a caravan arrives into Medina and brings with them news that the Meccans are regrouping and they're about to relaunch an attack on Medina. Alright, so as we know with the Battle of Uhud, the Muslim army was absolutely devastated. There were major losses from the companions. And now they finally regrouped in Medina. They're trying to settle down and trying to just, you know, comprehend what's just happened. And now all of a sudden this caravan comes along and tells them, Hey look, there's another ambush coming. Now, this was just fear-mongering. Another ambush wasn't actually coming. So, when the companions were told this, that a group is coming, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentions in the Qur'an the response of the companions. So he says, This is verses in Surah Al-Imran. 
الذين قال لهم الناس إن الناس قد جمعوا لكم فخشوهم فزادهم إيمانا That those who are warned, your, those who warned, your enemies have mobilized against you, against their forces, sorry, your enemies have mobilized their forces against you, so fear them. So the people of the caravan, they're telling the companions, they've mobilized against you, fear them. Right? However, فَزَادَهُمْ imana. This attempt of fear-mongering only increased the companions in their faith. فَزَادَهُمْ imana. And what did they say? وَقَالُوا حَسْبُنَ اللَّهُ وَنِعْمَ الْوَكِيلِ That Allah alone is sufficient for us as an aid, for He is our best protector. So like I mentioned, unfazed. Why? Because they had the full reliance and tawakkul upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this final one, that is being an upstanding member of society. How does our worship make us an upstanding member of society? Now I want us to turn our attention towards Surah Luqman, and particularly one pieces, one of the pieces of advice of Luqman radiallahu anh. So Luqman al-Hakim, Luqman the wise, was a man from just before the time of Dawood salam. And in the Quran, he has a series of advices, advices that he has given his son. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala loves these advices so much that he, is, uh, he has recorded them in the Quran. Now one of these pieces of advices he gives is, Ya Bunayya, aqim salata wa'mur bil ma'roof, wanha ala al-munkar, or my dear beloved son, establish your prayer, enjoin in good, forbid evil, and endure patiently for whatever befalls you. Now, how does this make you an upstanding member of society? Now, to recap what was mentioned. First thing Luqmanur advises is establish your prayer. When one has properly established their prayer in a full, comprehensive manner, Right? So what does salah, when one establishes the prayer, what does that actually mean? Allah mentions Surah An-Kabut that it protects the person from fahisha and from munkar. From indecency and from evil. It is one of the things that salah protects a person from. So when a person protects, when he establishes his prayer, he's protecting himself from evil, and he's protecting himself from doing evil. What is his next duty and command to do? What more bil ma'ruf? He established his prayer and now he is to spread this goodness amongst the people. He's now supposed to go out and preach goodness, call towards goodness. And he is to forbid the evil. Whatever wrong he sees, he is to change it, as we mentioned. He is to change it with his hand, change it with his tongue. If he can't do it, then change it with his heart, hating his heart at the very least. But once he has established himself firmly with his salah, with his other acts of worship, then it is a duty upon him, it is incumbent upon him to then share this with those that are around him. Now naturally, when you come to people and you, perhaps you come to them with a sincere heart and you advise them that perhaps brother, sister, what you are doing is wrong. Okay? Now for some people, they may take that well. They might appreciate your advice. But for other people, for them it is like, it is an attack on their ego. And... How do they respond? It's a very flippant respond. It's a very blunt respond. Who are you to tell me? Worry about yourself, right? Who are you to judge me? Etc. 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 Right? So, the implication is that when you try to create a small change in society, you will be getting backlash. All right? You will be getting some type of backlash. And what this may do is it may shake you a little bit. 
and it may make you untrue, stop doing what you're doing. This is why then the advice is then endure this with patience. All right? So, um, one particular example. A brother grows out of his beard. A sister wears her hijab. In a family, that does not wear hijab. Or in a family where the men do not grow their beard. All right? This person is trying to, trying to do their best to practice. All right? But their own parents, their own siblings, then begin to mock them. Now this person is doing this for themselves, or she is doing this for themselves, and then they might advise their sibling that, hey, you know, you should try it as well. You know, my older brother, you should try growing your beard. Or my older sister, or my younger sister, you should try wearing the hijab. Allah has commanded this, Prophet has commanded this, it is something good for us to do. And when you tell them, they begin mocking you. Or you've become, you know, like in, in Desi households, if you become a bit too practicing, you know, or you become a Molzi, right, you become a Molana, right? So, you begin hearing, you begin uh, attracting the other, you begin attracting the, uh, the, 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 the complaints of the people, all right? And so, the advice is, firmly ground yourself in salah, in, the, uh, in your obligations towards Allah, call towards good, forbid the evil, and then, whatever backlash you get, endure it patiently, for Allah says, that this is the resolve to aspire to. All right? So when, when you're going through this patience, this optional patience, then your reward is then high um, and, and, and deserving. And so once we've embodied all these different qualities, these different characteristics of the worshippers, the ones who worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, who worship their Lord, what is the end goal that we wish to attain besides Jannah and I'm speaking specifically in this world what state would we want to get to in this world Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in to, at the end the last page of uh, Surah, Surah An'am he says قُلْ إِنَّ صَلَاتِي وَنُسُكِي وَمَحْيَايَ وَمَمَاتِي لِلَّهِ رَبِّ الْعَالَمِينَ لَا شَرِيكَ لَهِ Say, O Prophet, that verily my prayer, my worship, or my sacrifice, my life, my death, all of it belongs to Allah. He has no partner. So I am commanded and I am the first to submit. This is the ideal station, ideal maqam that we wish to attain. That everything that we do, everything that we think, everything that we say, we wish that it is an act of worship or it turns into an act of worship. And we wish that, once again, everything that we do, it is all sincerely for the sake of Allah. That it is all accepted by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That brings us to the end of the presentation, end of the slides. To summarize, we've gone through the concept of worship. We've gone through who to worship. We've gone through who the worshippers are. We've gone through why the worshippers need to worship. And we've gone through these different characteristics. We've gone through the fuel that is required for worship, which is taqwa. And we've 
uh, gone through some of the endpoints as to where our worship results to. So we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make us of the worshippers. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make us of the muttaqeen. And I, I want to just make one final point. So in regards to taqwa, like I mentioned, that uh, the parents of the people that are considering having children, that the most important value for us to instill into our coming generations is taqwa. The only way that this can properly be actualized is if we ourselves, first of all, understand what we're doing. If we ourselves, first of all, attain taqwa. All right? As this dua that I'm sure many of us, particularly our brother Yusuf, has been making, right? From Surah, uh, from Surah Faqan. رَبَّنَا هَبَ لَنَا مِنْ أَزْوَاجِنَا وَذُرِّيَاتِنَا قُرَّةَ عَيُّنٍ وَجَعَلْنَا لِلْمُتَّقِينَ إِمَامًا Right? That, O oh Allah, uh, make from our, our, our offspring and our wives our, the coolness of our eyes وَجَعَلْنَا لِلْمُتَّقِينَ إِمَامًا And make us from the Imams of the Muttaqin. Now, how is an Imam made? How is an Imam appointed? He must have certain characteristics. He must have certain capabilities. Only then is somebody given the task to be an imam. An imam means leader. All right? It, it means leader. So whether it be imam for salah, imam of a masjid, imam for whatever task. You give a person the position of leadership because of the qualities that they have. And so if you want taqwa for your children, but you yourself are barely practicing, unless Allah has mercy on your child, it's safe to say, that there's a chance it's, it's not going to be a successful experiment. So, that's why it's important for us, married, unmarried, that we adopt these qualities of taqwa. That we focus on building and developing our taqwa because the fruits, not only will we be reaping, but our coming generations will also be reaping. I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to accept the good from that we do and uh, protect us all from evil. اللهم آمين سبحانك اللهم وبحمدك ونشهد ولا إله إلا أنت أستغفرك وأتوب إليك. Enemies have mobilized their forces against you, so fear them. So the people of the caravan, they're telling the companions, they've mobilized against you, fear them. Right? However, فزادهم إيمانا. This attempt of fear mongering only increased the companions in their faith. فزادهم إيمانا. And what did they say? وقالوا حسبنا الله ونعم الوكيل. That Allah alone is sufficient for us as an aid, for He is our best protector. So like I mentioned, unfazed. Why? Because they had the full reliance and tawakkul upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this final one, that is being an upstanding member of society. How does our worship make us an upstanding member of society? Now I want us to turn our attention towards Surah Luqman. And particularly one pieces, one of the pieces of advice of Luqman radiallahu anh. So Luqman al-Hakim, Luqman the wise, was a man from just before the time of Dawood And in the Quran, he has a series of advices, advices that he has given his son. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala loved these advices so much that he, is, uh, he has recorded them in the Quran. Now one of these pieces of advices he gives is, Ya Bunayya, aqim salata wa'mur bil ma'roof, wanha ala al-munkar, Oh my dear beloved son, establish your prayer, enjoin in good, forbid evil, and endure patiently for whatever befalls you. Now how does this make you an upstanding member of society? Now to recap what was mentioned. First thing Luqman advises is establish your prayer. 
when one has properly established their prayer in a full comprehensive manner, right? So what does salah, when one establishes the prayer, what does that actually mean? Allah mentions Surah An-Kabut that it protects the person from fahisha and from munkar, from indecency and from evil. It is one of the things that salah protects a person from. So when a person protects, when he establishes his prayer, he's protecting himself from evil and he's protecting himself from doing evil. What is his next duty and command to do? وَأْمُرْ بِالْمَعْرُوثِ He establishes prayer and now he is to spread this goodness amongst the people. He's now supposed to go out and preach goodness, call towards goodness. And he is to forbid the evil. Whatever wrong he sees, he is to change it, as we mentioned. He is to change it with his hand, change it with his tongue. If he can't do it, then change it with his heart, hating his heart at the very least. But once he has established himself firmly, with his salah, with his other acts of worship, then it is a duty upon him, it is incumbent upon him to then share this with those that are around him. Now naturally, when you come to people and you, perhaps you come to them with a sincere heart and you advise them that perhaps brother, sister, what you were doing is wrong. Okay? Now for some people, they may take that well. They might appreciate your advice. But for other people, for them it is like, it is an attack on their ego. And... How do they respond? It's a very flippant respond. It's a very blunt respond. Who are you to tell me? Worry about yourself, right? Who are you to judge me? Etc. 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 Right? So, the implication is that when you try to create a small change in society, you will be getting backlash. All right? You will be getting some type of backlash. And what this may do is it may shake you a little bit. And it may make you want to stop doing what you're doing. This is why then the advice is Then endure this with patience Alright So um, One particular example A brother grows out of his beard A sister wears her hijab In a family that does not wear hijab Or in a family where the men do not grow their beard Alright This person is trying to Trying to do their best to practice Alright But their own parents Their own siblings Then begin to mock them now this person is doing this for themselves or she is doing this for themselves and then they might advise their sibling that hey, you know, you should try it as well. You know, my older brother, you should try growing your beard. Or my older sister or my younger sister, you should try wearing the hijab. Allah has commanded this. Prophet has commanded this. There's something good for us to do. And when you tell them, they begin mocking you. Or you've become, you know, like in, in Desi households, if you become a bit too practicing, you know, or you become a Molzi, right? You become a Molana, right? So, you begin hearing, you begin uh, attracting the other, you begin attracting the, uh, the, 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 the complaints of the people, all right? And so, the advice is, firmly ground yourself in salah, in, the, uh, in your obligations towards Allah, call towards good, forbid the evil, and then, whatever backlash you get, endure it patiently, for Allah says, inna dhalika min azmin umur, that this is the resolve to aspire to. All right. So when Edward, when you're going through this patience, this optional patience, then your reward is then high um, and, and, and deserving. And so once we've embodied all these different qualities, these different characteristics of the worshippers, 
the ones who worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, who worship their Lord, what is the end goal that we wish to attain? Besides Jannah, and I'm speaking specifically in this world, what state would we want to get to in this world? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in, to, at the end, the last page of uh, Surah, Surah An'am, He says, قُلْ إِنَّ صَلَاتِي وَنُسُكِي وَمَحْيَايَ وَمَمَاتِي لِلَّهِ رَبِّ الْعَالَمِينَ لَا شَرِيكَ لَهِ وَبِذَالِكَ أُمِرْتُ وَأَنَا أَوَّلُ الْمُسْلِمِينَ Say, O Prophet, that verily my prayer, my worship or my sacrifice, my life, my death, all of it belongs to Allah. He has no partner. So I am commanded and I am the first to submit. This is the ideal station, ideal maqam that we wish to attain. That everything that we do, everything that we think, everything that we say, we wish that it is an act of worship. Or it turns into an act of worship. And we wish that, once again, everything that we do, it is all sincerely for the sake of Allah. That it is all accepted by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. That brings us to the end of the presentation, end of the slides. To summarize, we've gone through the concept of worship. We've gone through who to worship. We've gone through who the worshippers are. We've gone through why the worshippers need to worship. And we've gone through these different characteristics. We've gone through the fuel that is required for worship, which is taqwa. And we've uh, gone through some of the endpoints as to where our worship results to. So we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make us of the worshippers. We ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to make us of the muttaqeen. And I, I want to just make one final point. So in regards to taqwa, like I mentioned, that uh, the parents of a people that are considering having children, that the most important value for us to instill into our coming generations is taqwa. The only way that this can properly be actualized is if we ourselves, first of all, understand what we're doing. If we ourselves, first of all, attain taqwa. All right? As this dua that I'm sure many of us, particularly our brother Yusuf, has been making, right? From Surah, uh, from Surah Furqan. رَبَّنَا هَبَلَنَا مِنْ أَزْوَاجِنَا وَذُرِّيَاتِنَا قُرَّةَ عَيُّنٍ وَجَعَلْنَا لِلْمُتَّقِينَ إِمَامًا Right? That, O oh Allah, uh, make from our, our, our offspring and our wives our, the coolness of our eyes and make us from the imams of the muttaqin. now how is an imam made? how is an imam appointed? he must have certain characteristics he must have certain capabilities only then is somebody given the task to be an imam an imam means leader alright it, it means leader so whether it be imam for salah imam of a masjid imam for whatever task you give a person the position of leadership because of the qualities that they have and so if you want taqwa for your children but you yourself are barely practicing unless Allah has mercy on your child it's safe to say that there's a chance it's, it's not going to be a successful experiment so that's why it's important for us married unmarried that we adopt these qualities of taqwa that we focus 
on building and developing our taqwa because the fruits, not only will we be reaping, but our coming generations will also be reaping. I ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to accept the good from that we do and uh, protect us all from evil. Allahumma ameen, subhanakallahumma bihamdik, wa nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta, astaghfiruka wa atubu ilaha.